Hello, Sex Appeal listeners. This is Kit Elliott, one of your hosts for this show. After an extended hiatus, Katie and I have reassessed our stance on the true crime genre as entertainment and the way it affects the real-world victims involved in these cases. While this show has always striven to highlight injustices and prejudice in our society and legal system over anything else, we still want to make some changes to assure absolutely no harm comes from the stories we tell here. So, now, Sex Appeal Women on Trial will focus solely on historic true crime cases. That is, trials that took place a minimum of 150 years ago. All of our episodes already posted over the years that discuss cases that do not meet this new criteria have been removed, which is the main reason for this announcement. Because several episodes were deleted in their entirety, some remaining episodes may contain references to something said in one of them. We apologize for any confusion or continuity problems this creates. We hope you can understand the reasoning behind this decision. Thank you for listening and enjoy the episode. This episode discusses domestic abuse. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome back to Sex Appeal Women on Trial. I'm Kit. And I'm Katie. We are trying to get back to our regular bi-weekly episode schedule. We are currently working full-time jobs and have very little spare time to ourselves, but we are trying our best. The other day, I looked up our demographics to see where our listeners live, and holy moly, there are at least 50 different countries. We cannot express how happy it makes us to see that people, you know, besides our friends and family, even tolerate us. To begin to show our appreciation, we're going to start each episode with a thank you to a different country where our listeners are coming from. And today, in honor of the election results, we would like to say thank you to our listeners across America. It is crazy to see listeners from our home state in Massachusetts all the way to San Francisco. So Kit, anything you've been obsessing over this week? Um, I started my new job today in my new-ish city I just moved to. So my obsession has been working, but also I've been trying to get back into re-listening to old music that I used to like, which includes musicals, because unfortunately I am a theater kid. Please understand, I know it is an abomination, but as of today, I am now back into my obsession with Fun Home. What about you? What you been obsessing over lately? I have been listening to Corpse nonstop lately. If you do not know who Corpse is, he is a YouTuber who reads short horror stories and is a rapper who became famous for playing the game Among Us. He also has a very deep, deep voice that is just, mwah, chef's kiss. I don't know, I just love his disembodied voice. It does something. I also just want to say that we understand that these past few weeks have been insane and so emotionally taxing. And just want to state that our main goal on this podcast is always to have fun telling you guys about these stories and cases we've researched and maybe help you forget about your life for a couple minutes. Today, I'll be telling you, our lovely listeners and Kit, about the Greenberg ghost. This is the only known case which testimony from a ghost helped convict a murderer. Oh, sure, but when I walk into a courtroom covered in a sheet and booing at people, I'm a public disturbance and embarrassing myself. We do not condone crime here on Sex Appeal. But gosh darn, don't we love a good story. Let's get started. Zona Hester was born in Greenberg County, West Virginia, sometime around 1873. 
There isn't much known of her earlier life, other than that she was brought up near Richlands and that she gave birth to a child out of Litlock in 1895. In October 1896, the 22-year-old Zona met a 30-something-year-old drifter named Edward Shue. People in town called him Trout. Trout? Like they just... Hey, Trout. Oh, you know, that's just my good buddy, Trout. Yes, I was going to refer to him as Shue, but I think Trout is so much funnier. Unlike his name, he was described as a tall, muscular man as well as being very handsome. Trout moved to Greenberg County in search of a new life. He found work as a blacksmith in his shop owned by James Crookshanks. Sona met him no longer after he arrived in town. The two fell in love, and after a few months, they got married. This would have been fine and dandy at that time. However, Zona's mama... <laughs> Zona mama. However, Zona's mother, Mary Jane Hester, objected to the match and had taken an instant dislike to Trout. I mean, to be fair, people call him Trout. On January 23rd, 1897, a few months into their marriage, Trout had gone to the home of Martha Jones, known better as Aunt Martha. Goodness gracious. Known better as Aunt Martha. He asked if her son, Anderson Jones, could go to his house and do chores and see if Zona needed anything from the store since she was feeling sick. Anderson would usually do chores around the young couple's home, so this did not seem out of the ordinary. Once inside, the boy was horrified to find Zona's lifeless body at the foot of the stairs. According to the report, the body laid face down, one outstretched arm, her other arm was tucked underneath her chest. Her legs were straight out and her head was slightly tilted. Anderson ran back to his home, where he informed his mother, and then onto the blacksmith shop where Trout was working. When told of the discovery, Trout demanded the local doctor and coroner, Dr. George W. Knapp, to be called and ran straight home. By the time Dr. Knapp arrived, Trout already prepared Zona for the funeral. He dressed her in a long gown with a high collar. He adored her neck with a scarf, which he claimed was her favorite. This action and behavior seemed concerning to the doctor because it was Victorian custom that female family members and friends of the deceased wash and dress the body. Yeah, that's what we should be worrying about. Customs and propriety, not the fact that this man has now had access to tamper with the body and the police evidence. Okay, cool, 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 cool. Cradling his wife's head, Trout remained by the corpse while Dr. Knapp examined it. Knapp, noting the husband's grief, gave the body a very brief examination. When he tried to look at the neck, Trout reacted so violently that Knapp had to end his examination. Dr. Knapp concluded that Zona died of an everlasting faint, aka a heart attack. At 22, I feel like that's a really weird assumption to make about someone with no evidence when they're 22. I can picture Trout crying over the body and Nap is like, oh, let me look at the neck. Get away from my wife! Okay, never mind, goodbye. It was, I guess it was a heart attack. John, Mul- John Mulaney, get away from my wife! I did not kill my wife! Ooh, maybe he did kill his wife. So Zona's cause of death was listed as everlasting faint, but was later changed to childbirth. Nap had been treating her for, quote, female troubles for the last two weeks before her death. But whether she was pregnant or not is unknown. Katie, this doctor sucks. This doctor sucks. Zona was buried the next day on January 24th, 1897, in the local cemetery, Seoul Chapel Methodist Cemetery. Trout stayed close to the body the entire viewing and ceremony. Attendees of the funeral stated that some of his mourning behaviors looked very sus. During the wake, 
His grief changed rapidly from overwhelming sadness to anger. He did not let anyone, including close family members, to come close to the coffin, especially while he was placing a pillow on one side of her head and rolled up sheet on the other. He seemed to do this to help her rest easier. Trout once again tied a large scarf around the corpse's neck, explaining tearfully that it had been Zona's favorite. Please note that many people thought this was strange, but argue that people grief different. When it came time to move the corpse to the cemetery, though, several people noticed that there seemed to be a strange looseness to Zona's head. Mary believed that her son-in-law had something to do with the death of her daughter. After the wake, she removed the sheet from inside the coffin and tried to return it to Trout, but he refused it. Why she would take it out in the first place, I don't know. Anyway, she noticed it had an odd odor and she decided to wash it. Well, yeah, it was next to a dead body. That could possibly be the bad odor. Mary stated that the water in the washing basin turned red when she dropped the sheet in it. The sheet then turned pink and the water cleared. The stain could not be removed, which Mary took as a sign that Zona had been murdered. It wasn't clear if she took it as a physical evidence that her daughter had been murdered or if she saw it as a bad omen. She began to pray, hoping that Zona would return to her. Soon, her prayers will be answered. It's time for Let's Learn Something New. If you're a Tim Burton fan like me, you've probably seen his 2005 stop-motion film, The Corpse Bride. The Corpse Bride is based on the twisted tale, The Finger, a 17th century Jewish folklore. The Finger is about a young bridegroom who slipped his wedding ring on the finger of a corpse while jokingly reciting his vows to his friend. Suddenly, the corpse leaps up and exclaims, My husband! Horrified, the man brings his dead spouse before a rabbi, who annuls their marriage by declaring that the dead can lay no claim to the living. With a piercing screech, the corpse falls apart into a pile of disjointed bones. The living bride then made a promise to the corpse that they will live out the corpse's dream of having a family. She then laid the corpse to rest. You may think this story is morbid, but sometimes real life is scarier than fiction. In 19th century Russia, anti-Semitism was widely spread in Eastern Europe. At this time, it was very often that anti-Semites would attack a Jewish wedding party on their way to the wedding. Since individuals who practice the Jewish faith do not try to convert others, the bride would be the one to bear future generations. She would be ripped out of her carriage and be murdered and buried in her wedding dress. This has been Let's Learn Something New, and now back to our regularly scheduled crime talk. According to legend, Zona appeared to her mother in a dream four weeks after the funeral. Supposedly, the ghost appeared first as bright light, gradually taking form and filling the room with a chill. The ghost of Zona stated that Trout was not the loving husband the locals thought he was. In reality, he was a cruel man who abused her. On the night she was murdered, Trout attacked her in a fit of rage when he believed that she had not cooked meat for dinner. He broke her neck and left the body at the bottom of the stairs. Mary stated that the ghost turned her head around until it was facing backwards. Alright, yeah, that's scary, but also, like, a little cool. (laughs) Mary stated that she visited her over the course of four nights. After the final visit, Mary visited the local prosecutor, John Alfred Preston, and spent several hours in his office trying to convince him to reopen the case of Zona's death. It is unknown if he believed her story, but he too believed that Zona's death was sus and that Trout had something to do with it. He then dispatched deputies to re-interview several people, including Dr. Knapp. Preston went to speak to Dr. Knapp, who stated that he had not made a complete examination of the body. 
Preston concluded that this was viewed as a sufficient justification of an autopsy, an examination of the body was ordered, as well as an inquest. Sona's body was examined on February 22, 1897, in the local one-room schoolhouse. Due to the cold weather, Zona's body showed slow decomposition. The Greenberg Independent reported that Trout vigorously complained about the examination, but it was made clear to him prior that he would be forced to attend the inquest if he did not go willingly. I love this. He replied that he knew that he would be arrested, quote, but they will not be able to prove I did it. This careless statement indicated that he at least had knowledge that his wife had been murdered or that someone had responsibility of her death. God, guys, this is stupid. I totally didn't kill my wife, and, like, there's no way you can prove that I did, so, like, there's no point in examining the body. You just don't even bother. Uh, we didn't say anyone did it. We're just re-examining the body, and since you're her husband, you have to be here. Like, we didn't say she was murdered. We still don't know what happened. Well, I didn't do it. The autopsy lasted for three days and found that Zona's neck was indeed broken. According to a report published on March 9, 1897, the discovery was made that the neck was broken and the windpipe smashed. Under throat were marks of fingers, indicating that she had been choked. The neck was dislocated between the first and second vertebrae. The ligaments were torn and ruptured. So to give Dr. Knapp the benefit of a doubt when he did his first autopsy, those bruises around her neck could have been under the skin when he did his brief examination and had risen or became more profound after burial. Okay, great. Lock him up. Bye. Well, just because Zona was obviously murdered, that doesn't mean that Trout was the one that killed her. Preston was concerned that Mary would be the new number one suspect since she knew about the broken neck before the inquest. To be safe, Preston wanted to do a little bit more research on Trout before arresting him for murder. After some digging, Preston found out that Trout's name wasn't Edward, but Erasmus Strebling Trout Shoe. He also discovered that Trout was previously married twice. His first wife divorced him due to constant abuse, and his second wife died of mysterious circumstances after a year of marriage. One source stated that she died from a broken neck when she fell off a haystack, another said that she went through ice, one said that she died while helping Trout repairing a chimney. Wait, but how would that have happened? It said that he was on the top of the chimney and his wife was placing rocks in a basket with a rope attached to the side. As the rope was being drawn up to Trout, it turned upside down and dropped a rock on her head. Sometime between his two marriages, Trout went to prison for two years after stealing a horse. From the discovery of the inquest, his suspicious behavior at the funeral, and new evidence, Trout was arrested and charged with the murder of his wife. Trout was held in the jail in Lewisburg while waiting for the trial to begin on June 22, 1897. He hired defense lawyers William Reckler and James Gardner to represent him in court. This is kind of random, but James Gardner was the first African-American lawyer to practice in a circus court in that state. On the stand, Trout stated that he did serve time in jail for stealing a horse, but he was not a murderer. He said he was an innocent man who loved his wife. He appealed to the jury to look at his face and say that he was guilty. His testimony, behavior, and circumstantial evidence made an unfavorable impression on the jury and spectators. Um, yeah, yeah, unfavorable. God, he's so stupid. Look at this handsome face. I'm not a murderer. Even though the jury clearly didn't like Trout, Preston was reluctant to have Hester as a witness. I mean, the whole reason why this case was reopened was because she stated that she saw Zona's ghost appear to her and told her exactly how she died. 
Preston was afraid that it would discredit her in the eyes of the court. The defense believed this as well, so they called her to the stand. The following is the official testimony. Please know that this is 19th century West Virginia speech, so it might not sound grammarly correct. I also have a very thick New England accent that I try to hide from this podcast, so it's going to sound weird either way. Now, Mrs. Huster, this sad affair was very particularly imprinted upon your mind, and there was not a moment during your awakening hours that you did not dwell upon it? They saw enough themselves without me telling them. It was no dream. She came back and told me that he was mad and that she didn't have no meat cooked for supper. But she said she had plenty and said that she had butter and apple butter, apples, and named over two or three kinds of jellies, pears, and cherries, and raspberry jelly, and she says I had plenty. And she says, don't you think that he was mad and just took down all my nice things and packed them away and just ruined them? And she told me where I could look down back of Aunt Martha Jones, in the meadow, in a rocky place, that I could look in a cellar behind some loose plank and see. It was a square log house, and it was hewed up to the square, and she said for me to look right at the right-hand side of the door as you go in, and at the right-hand corner as you go in. Well, I saw the place just exactly as she told me, and I saw blood right there where she told me. And she told me something about the meat every night she came, just as she did the first night. She comes four times and four nights, but the second night she told me that her neck was squeezed off the first joint, and it was just as she told me. And was this not a dream founded upon your distressed condition of mind? No, sir, it was no dream, for I was wide awake as I ever was. If not a dream or dreams, what do you call it? I prayed to the Lord that she might come back and tell me what had happened, and I prayed that she might come herself and tell on him. Do you think you actually saw her in flesh and blood? Yes, sir, I do. I told them in the very dress that she was killed in, and when she went to leave me, she turned her head completely around and looked at me like she wanted me to know all about it. And the very next time she came back to me, she told me all about it. The first time she came, she seemed that she did not want to tell me as much about it as she did afterwards. The last night she was there, she told me that she did everything she could do, and I am satisfied that she did do all that too. Now, Mrs. Hester, don't you know that these visions, as you term them or describe them, were nothing more or less than four dreams founded upon your distress? No, I don't know it. The Lord sent her to me to tell it. I was the only friend that she knew that she could tell and put any confidence in. I was the nearest one to her. She gave me a ring that he pretended she wanted me to have. But I don't know what dead woman he might have taken it off of. I wanted her own ring, and he would not let me have it. Mrs. Hester, are you positively sure that these are not four dreams? Yes, sir. It was not a dream. I don't dream when I am wide awake, to be sure, and I know I saw her right there with me. Are you not considerably superstitious? No, sir, I am not. I was never that way before, and I am not now. Do you believe in the scriptures? Yes, sir. I have no reason not to believe it. And do you believe the scriptures contain the words of God and his son? Yes, sir, I do. Don't you believe it? Now, I would like, if I could, to get you to say that these were four dreams and not four visions or appearances of your daughter in flesh and blood? I'm not going to say that, for I am not going to lie. Then you insist that she actually appeared in flesh and blood to you upon four different occasions? Yes, sir. 
Did she not have any other conversation with you other than upon the matter of her death? Yes, sir. Some other little things. Some things I have forgotten. Just a few words. I wanted the particulars about her death, and I got them. When she came, did you touch her? Yes, sir. I got up on my elbows and reached out a little further, as I wanted to see if people came in in their coffins. And I sat up and leaned on my elbow, and there was light in the house. It was not a lamplight. I wanted to see if there was a coffin, but there was not. She was just like she was when she left this world. It was just after I went to bed, and I wanted her to come and talk to me, and she did. This was before the inquest, and I told my neighbors. They said she was exactly as I told them she was. Have you ever seen the premises where your daughter lived? No, sir, I had not, but I found them just exactly as she told me it was, and I never laid eyes on that house until since her death. She told me this before I knew anything of the buildings at all. How long was it after this when you had these interviews with your daughter until you did see buildings? It was a month or more after the examination. It has been a little over a month since I saw her. You said your daughter told you that down by the fence in a rocky place you would find some things? She said for me to look there. She didn't say I would find some things, but for me to look there. Did she tell you what to look for? No, she did not. I was so glad to see her, I forgot to ask her. Have you ever examined that place since? Yes, sir. We looked at the fence a little, but didn't find anything. There's no way the jury really thought she saw her daughter, right? Well, the jury was left with circumstantial evidence, and the judge cautioned them, quote, There is no middle ground for the jury to take. The verdict inevitably and logically must be for murder in the first degree or for an acquittal. The trial lasted for eight days, and deliberations lasted for a little more than an hour. Finally, after being out for an hour and ten minutes, the jury returned to the court with a verdict of murder in the first degree. Most of the jury and the residents of Greenberg wanted Trout to receive the death penalty. Since the votes were not unanimous, Trout was sentenced to life in prison. On the day he was scheduled to be transported to prison, a local farmer tipped to the police that an angry mob of at least 30 men passed his farm heading to the prison with pitchforks and a noose. The police were able to hide Trout in the woods and control the mob. He was then sent safely to prison. He died of an unknown epidemic disease three years later and was buried in an unmarked grave. I found this funny, even though it's not really funny, but there are, like, several musicals based on this case. There was one in 1998 by Jan Buttrams called Zona by the Greenberg Valley Theater, another one called Greenberg Goes, a full-length musical adaption written by Kathy Sawyer, and finally Greenberg 1897 written and performed by the students of Lawwell Institution for the Creative Arts. So, did Mary really see her daughter's spirit? Were the visions of Zona only elaborate dreams manifested due to her mourning? Or is it possible that Mary made up having visions to simply just get the justice her daughter deserved? On US 9060, in front of the Sam Black Church in West Virginia, there is a sign dedicated to the spirit of Zona Hester Shue or the Greenberg Ghost. Sex Appeal Women on Trial was brought to you by us, Kit Elliott and Katie Clark. Music is Dark Tranquility by Anno Domini Beats. Special thanks to Framingham State University's WDJM Radio. We would like to thank Melin Costello from MC Design Photography for creating our logo. You can find her on Facebook and Instagram under mcdesign underscore photography. Remember to leave a five-star rating and review us on iTunes. And follow us on Instagram at Sex Appeal Podcast and Twitter at Sex Appeal Pod. 
You can also visit our website, sexappealpodcast.weebly.com, for additional content, including more details about our episodes, like written transcriptions and pictures. If you have any questions about our show or suggestions for future episodes, please email us at sexappealpod at gmail.com. Thank you.